So we've just spent a weekend here, haven't we, recording sounds. We and, have. Uh, I'm going to start with the fact I was so hugely impressed by the way you leapt out of bed at dawn yesterday and recorded the dawn chorus, which you do regularly, don't you? Because you often do this International Dawn Chorus Day event as well, where yeah. you get up in the morning and record the birds. And I'm just fascinated what gets you out of bed, because I always find this really difficult to get out of bed in the morning. What what is it that gets you up to, to, to record the birds? I think that the uh, International Dawn Chorus Day thing, uh, at weekend, which is organised by some people in London, Grant and others, it sort of spurred me... It didn't spur me, sorry. I'll go back to something I said to you earlier. Yeah. And that was that he contacted me for various reasons for the work that had been putting out from the studio and said, would I like to be part of this event? broadcasting live from Dorset, from the studio. And I said yes. And I think, actually, the reason why I get up is what I said earlier, is once I've said I'm going to do it, <laughs> I just have to do it. Um, and it's... And leading up to it, and I will admit, leading up to it, it's always, oh, why did I say I would do it? <laughs> so it's never easy, is what you're saying. Actually, um, the thought of doing it is not easy. Doing it in the end is actually really easy. And once you're out, once you're up at like five o'clock in the morning, standing in the middle of a field or somewhere, or, or doing it at the studio even, um, it's amazing. You like it? I mean, obviously. I really enjoy it. You just stand there and you just soak up. And because the nature is recorded, audio recorded, and you're soaking up the sound, whereas normally you're just you're you're just seeing, and it is it adds that other level to the experience. It sounds then like obviously you enjoy the process of listening and maybe even deep listening. Is that something you consider yourself doing when you're doing this kind of recording? You're really, I've seen you. You're really in the zone and you're really attentive. To what's happening? Do you think of it I, as a deep listening practice? It's a deep listening practice for myself. Yeah, I just happen to be recording what's going on as well. And of course, it changes the way that you listen. Um, yesterday, when we were recording Paul, I seemed to be the first one to be aware of any intrusive sound. Whereas normally, as listeners, we cut those sounds out and we just ignore them. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm listening on, on quite a deep level as to try and listening in the same way as a microphone is recorded, mm. and that's non-selective. Mm. You know, taking everything in. 
The next part, the editing, and then the part over the, after that, which is producing or publishing in some way, is, is I find quite interesting. Mm. The statement that uh, Salome made about the, the validity of a lot of sound work, but that's from an academic point of view. And then the discussions I've had with Yvonne, yeah. who has this sort of symphonic approach to producing sound, edit, editing and producing sound at the end, Whereas it's, it's, she feels it's got to be precise and it's got to be basically match, sort of working like a symphony, I think, in a very serious way. And, and we decided that I was much more like a punk band, <laughs> where I would actually have this collection of sound and throw it in different places along the, the timeline, move it around until I liked the, the sequence that it made up and the sound that it was So it's far more sort of intuitive process, not that it's an intuitive process. As I was this weekend, I was saying I'm, I don't read music. I like listening to music, I don't read music. So it's, I approach it from a completely different way. And earlier, after where you said you were going to interview me, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, well, ever since I was a young, ever since I was a kid, I've made things. Right. And I think I approach sound in the same way. I build soundscapes. I don't compose soundscapes. Okay. I build performances. So when we've done live performances, I've yeah. actually thought about what I'm going to do and I've pre-recorded lots of stuff as well, right. as, which is then manipulated live. So is it a bit like a, a sound sculpture in a way then? You're sort of created... Yeah, it's a bit more like that? a sound airfix kit. <laughs> 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 I have all these bits that, that go into place, yeah. <laughs> so um, what got, I mean, because your background is partly in more visual arts, isn't it, in graphic design and that side of it? Uh, my, my background, my, my degree is in three-dimensional furniture design. Right. Um, which, again, is about building. Right. Um, and I, found, I, I also found that graphic design is much the same way. You build, you build a page or a magazine mm. in the same way as, as the... As you build anything, right? I think. But what fired you up with in terms of sound recording and sound? Art? I've always been interested in sound, and I I think that the other last night we were talking about prog rock, um, <laughs> and I remember recently going back to listen to some certain, you know Pink Floyd tracks and King Crimson and people like that from that that period of time when I was listening to a lot of music and seeing lots of bands. I suddenly discovered that a lot of the background sounds in, at that point in time, it's actual sounds out from nature. Right. And particularly a lot of you know, bird song and, and stuff that, that, that we've been recording over the weekend. But I also found, and I can't think of any examples, but I, there's also um, samples from urban environments as well. Right. So eco-acoustics has been used as a lower layer yeah. in progressive rock. And, and you know, that's such a good point, because I was reading about this recently, that you had sort of music concrete in the 50s and 60s, and the whole sort of tape approach to creating experimental sound. Art. So, and then it filtered, and it inspires that prog rock generation in the 60s and 70s. So they were using sort of, they were sort of inspired by 
you know, right down to the Beatles, weren't they? They were inspired by the, the sort of cutting edge of contemporary uh, experimental sound art using tape and those kind of mm. cut-up procedures. And you're right, and then it, then it appears in, in a lot of early prog rock albums, you're quite right. So you clued into that when you were listening to well, this. Well, I think it might have been sort of subliminal. I ah. <laughs> it's, it's, it was sort of set in there in the back of ah, my okay. mind and slowly... Because the other thing, of course, coming from a background of, of continually making models and working by my father and making things out of cardboard and, all, and adapting... Whatever. Adapting things, making things. I've done that all my life. It's, and I think that the being intrigued by the technology. Um, yeah. So my boys' toys are all microphones and, <laughs> and recorders and all that sort of stuff. I, I know nothing at all about cars, you know. Um, so that's where there's also a, 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 a deep-seated interest in the tools for building right. yeah, whatever. Probably. Yeah, that makes sense. So what point did you take the plunge of creating your own studio? Because you have this fantastic studio yourself now over in Bridport. And, uh, and that's one of a... You've had a succession of spaces, haven't you? You've used, and yeah. often you've had huge numbers of people come and work in those spaces with you, including school kids and you know, community members, all kinds of projects you've had. So what, at what point did you decide, right, I'm no longer <laughs> thinking purely graphically, I'm now... A, Pucker sound artist with my own studio space. I don't think it was a conscious thought. I think it's something that just grew. It just oh. evolved. Um, I was commissioned to do a soundscape for Activate and Ridgeway. That was that may have been the first commission. Actually, no, I wasn't commissioned. I told them that I would do it. I said to them to let you do it. Yeah, I did. I've got an idea. We could do this as part of the, the Ridgeway project. Um, and they took it up. And then from there, obviously, people say, oh, could you... That's a group, kind of organically. Group? And, then, yeah. mm. and the, the um, home education group grew out of just um, a network of friends who were home educating their children, and they, they said, could you actually take on board one of the groups? And... And that also grew. I mean, that was crazy because I've taught as well, remember? Ah, yes. So I've taught within a system which is very rigid and curriculum-driven. Yeah. But when you're teaching a group of uh, homeschooled children yeah. and you're teaching them media, as they called it, which can be video, audio, combinations of both. Um, perfect for you then. It sort of spanned your interest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you actually are not stuck down yeah. one track. Uh, and young people are very, are very um, open, really. Yeah. If they're out of a rigid environment. So you like really. teaching them. Again, it's a sort of punk ethos coming through there, sort of outside the normal curriculum and normal schooling pathways. Your well, home ed. <laughs> I, I mean, I taught for about ten years uh, part time, and it's far too rigid. Yes. Yeah. It, it doesn't get. Doesn't fire. It trains it. people to do. The minimum, actually. <laughs> really? That's <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I mean, also, I left school when I was 15. I, mm. I, I 
could just about read and write when I left school. I could read and write, which was kind of good, but I didn't do it very much. It wasn't something I actually um, enjoyed doing. But then you develop skills through networks of people. So when I went to university, I probably learned more from my friends, girlfriends, than I did from the system. Yeah. But it, the system gives you enough room, gives you space to do it. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier about Brid, uh, the other day about Bridport, one of its best points is it, there's a lot of space. Right. Yeah. And you can actually get on with what you want, would like doing, what you enjoy yeah. doing. Um, and at a certain point in my life, I mean, I've worked loads of different jobs to finance uh, my hobby. Which is why I, I mean, I've always done my hobby for a living. Yeah, that's nice. Art, yeah. Creativity. But when I analyse it, going back to your earlier question, I think I like building things. Right. Rather than gut reactions to the landscape we can see at the moment. Yeah. I yeah. actually I obviously have a feeling, an emotion about it. I do actually joke that I I'm not very we're not very keen on things that are green. <laughs> And yet, um, here you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am in the middle of a very green yeah, environment. Mm. And I do enjoy it. But I don't know what on what level, I don't know what on emotional level or what academic level I, I'm involved in. I think that's things. fascinating, that, yeah. And you've obviously reflected on it a bit. I'm interested mm. in the environment. I'm interested in... Um, Making sure that the environment is there for my grandchildren and their ah, children, and all yeah. that sort of, of, of lineage <laughs> <laughs> and legacies that we leave behind. But I'm more interested in how we go forward. That's a very, it's a bit of a difficult thing to say. Hmm. I was interested in something that you put forward, as far as I can remember, from a talk of yours I was listening to, and that was that we start at a point and we go around into a circle, but don't expect to go back to the point that you started at. Right. You have to be back at a new point, which yeah. is influenced by everything that went on. Yeah, this certainly happens in a lot of, sort of ecological yeah. systems. So it's a spiral yeah. right. project, projection, rather yeah. than a circular. And that interests me a lot, because I think that Things, lots of things in the environment are changing. Mm. What we've got to do is make sure that those changes are not detrimental. Mm. Yeah. That, so that's an interest that I have in mm. climate. Mm. And how does that connect with sort of a sound art practice? Do you see a link there? Or is, is not, it's not, not really For me, it's, a, it's not academic at all. It's very yeah. simple. Um, I mean, I've recorded the dawn chorus from at the studio environment, which is basically in the middle of nowhere, um, on a <laughs> farm. And for about five, six years now,
There's something that I do that, that not a lot of people I work with or know seem to do, and that is I listen to my own productions. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, a, it's not an ego thing. It's I get into the studio in the mornings, which all the speakers on, you know. Yeah, yeah you have a Gen lovely, lovely setup. Yeah. And I think, oh, let's go through the Bandcamp website. And I'll start right at the beginning and go through all the sort of 30 odd albums that I've produced. And, and you actually listen back to them? I listen back to them regularly, nearly every day, or listen back to well, something. That actually is quite unusual, I think. I didn't realise how unusual yeah. it was, yeah, yeah, until I mentioned it to people. Yeah, I think you're right. But I could, I, can I just say that it's not an ego driven thing, because in fact, I would say 85, 90% of the sound of the audio is not mine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think it's, it's looking back at what I've built. Oh, I see. Yeah. So you get a sense of achievement from having built that sort of bank up site and yeah. curated all of these. Yeah. And the way that they all of... intermesh and they all fit together. Well, I think you've done a terrific job with that. Uh, that's one of the things that impressed me most is your abilities to bring people together and produce stuff and get it out there. You've done it lots. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's another Airfix model. I, oh, I mean, I you know, it's, it's a lovely it's, way of viewing it. I've never seen it that not, way. That's yeah. what I do. So that's, that was life as a kid. You, you did have a house full of Airfix planes, did you? Oh, I, I had a cupboard in the living room which was full of Airfix kits and um, little Airfix models that we used to do dioramas with. And yeah. Stuff. But you see, that's, that's the other thing. When I say adapt build and adapt, we would go down to intricate little detail, yeah. like changing the, yeah. the shape of the tin helmets on the German soldiers, <laughs> which were only like, you know, less than an inch high. Um, and my father and my brother and myself actually did all, we always did this. And of course we always, we, we then, you then progress these things, just like you do in any creative, creative yeah. skill. I, I would put this as a creative skill, that we would save up gunpowder from um, from firework night um, <laughs> both my, my brother and my father smoked so we always had endless supply of lighter fuel <laughs> and we would make cannons that actually fired <laughs> they exploded when they hit the ground we would make flamethrowers for the soldiers that actually threw flames <laughs> Um, but that was the 1960s. <laughs> you know, sort of, health and safety wasn't quite as bad as that it was. Actually. Sorry, as good as it is now. Not as bad. That's brilliant. So that's my background, and that's uh, that's yeah. So my creative side is built upon purely mm. making, and I think I just adapt that that way of thinking. Well, that's really lovely to hear that, David. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I, I just have one final question, which is around. Um, you were talking about networks. That's another thing that struck me is you're really brilliant at. At networking with people and you know creating communities, bringing them together. I mean, for example, we're talking about the Whitstable Biennale that you've been in, involved with regularly and done a, a show there. I don't know whether you want to say a bit more about the sort of performance side of your work and this lovely way of collaborating with other people and putting programs together of live works, which I think you've done a you've done brilliant. Well, that, job that. that the the program of live works. Um, comes out of my working with Marcus, Marcus Ledley, and yeah. Goldsmiths. So he has this... So I have this sort of um, pool of young 
creatives, I mean, I mean young, they're 9 to 16, they're a bit older now, he has this pool of young creatives at, at Goldsmiths University, which is a sort of 18 to 25. So then there's the sort of the old boys that come in the top as well. And, and so it's a, it's a huge pool of, of creative people within the audio, uh, eco, acoustic, whatever. Um, and of course you've got all these... You know, yeah, I, know, I find it hugely stimulating meeting well. these... Uh... And like Marcus's student. And they just and you come together, you, you produce a pro well, we go together. I won't really say to people, sorry, I don't want that. Yeah. On my album. On this <laughs> album. Sorry, they're not my albums. On this album. Um I'll just won't bother listening to it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you're being inclusive and I well, love I that. Well I include them. Yeah. And if if, if people want to put work in or put work on, then yeah, and I said that I would produce an album at the end. It will be on the album. Yeah. And you've done things with members of the public too, like the thing we did at the Horniman, where anyone could come along. Mm-hmm. There was some of the students from Goldsmiths, but yep. members of the public could come along, learn from yourself and Marcus how to record, and then by the end of the day, they were doing a live performance. And yep. what struck me there was people were, some people were initially really reticent, said, oh, I can't do that, there's no way I could improvise with sound. But by the end of the day, they were just loving it. So you could see this world. And they were, can I say they were loving it? Not because I might add, it's a simple thing to do. It they were loving it because they, you can see the light come on. You can right. see people suddenly thinking, oh no, actually this sounds really good if I do, do this and do yeah. that, and put it with that.
Microphones. <laughs> There's a workshop. There's a workshop. Work Oh, what's this? 
Oh, it's dirty. Wow, look at this. Okay. So I'm sat here with David and Stephanie Rogers and yesterday they gave a great performance little event that we organised and um, you performed a, a piece that you worked on together. We did. Does it have a title, the piece? It was called Dark Dawn, Bright Future. That's a superb title. It's good, isn't it? It is. And what this featured, because I sat and listened to all of it and enjoyed every minute of it, it featured a mixture of Dawn Chorus recordings that yes. David had done. But it wasn't just that, was it? There's other animal sounds in there too. Well, or? no, it was all Dawn Chorus sounds. Okay. What it... it, it hmm. <laughs> Describe. The narrative... <laughs> Yes, the narrative of the whole piece was that there were pre-recorded sections from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Mm. And in a way that was the dark dawn because of the narrative of, the, of that book. And they were pre-recorded because September is the si this September is the 60th anniversary of the book being published. Mm. And then there were also some pre-recorded pieces about mostly artists working on ecologically themed projects that were then actually also working with industries, particularly the dyeing, the um, textile dyeing piece, oh, okay. uh, which was from a BBC re recording. So that was pre-recorded. But then Stephanie was also asked to read live should we say more hopeful things okay. that we're now doing? So apart from the, the 60 years in between each of these things, I, we were trying to identify where people mm. were trying to improve our environment. Okay. Or noting that there is a problem through artistic, like Flock and the French, yes. and the colour of water, um, Noting that there, that there were problems within our environments, particularly the ocean, that one, and, I, and bringing that to the fore, the colour of the water right. is showing you what's actually Happening wrong with okay. the water. Yeah. I, and the work with bacteria, which I've always found amazing, which actually fit about 15 years ago, I first, oh no, longer than that, probably longer than that, first really started to get interested when they were discovering that fish in uh, along certain outlets from mm. textiles or different industries going on were becoming asexual 
they were losing their genitalia. And they thought it might be the oestrogen within the wood that women were excreting from the birth pill. I heard this about, must be easily 20, 25 years ago, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, a bit horrifying. Then it all went very quiet about it. Right. So the work with bacteria and dying, uh, colour dying, and of course use of water too, which is phenomenal. Yeah, and I came true. across Rachel Carson when I was about 19. Did it had been, you? It had been out about three years. Wow. Yeah, so I read it then, and it's wow. silent spring, and I'd never forgotten it, ever, or her name. Well, it was an extraordinary ever. book, wasn't it? And she was an extraordinary she, woman. I don't know anything about her. Well, oh. very little about her. Okay. But what an extraordinary... Yes, and then talk about the name in the title, to call it that. Yeah. And that's, ex- you know, that's well, exactly... Well, it's the fact what, that uh, not only was she... Uh, you know, one of the first campaigning environmentalists, really. Uh, as a, you know, she was a scientist, she was a fish biologist, wasn't she? she See, I didn't fish. know that. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just um, read it because it was out there and, like, right. we were reading all sorts, you know. But it's not just the fact that she's doing the science and getting worked up about, you know, what's happening to the environment. 60 years ago. But she's also a woman in what was a very male very, yeah. environment. Yeah. So she's having to yeah. deal with this, um, you know, huge amount of opposition from not only industry but the scientific establishment as well who were in alliance you know so well they could be vile to their their own um, the people they were working with absolutely and right. sidelined they, and elbowed and hmm. it was I mean there's territorial everything is territorial isn't it really I think I think they were really or, brutal to her so she had brutal. to be incredibly strong hmm. to um, stand by her results hmm. and to um, you know keep yeah, sort of develop right. this pressure against against this yeah, industry of, of pesticides. Well, in, yeah. when I was um, researching it further, mm. in fact, yeah, it, uh, it says that, in fact, they tried to get the book banned. Exactly. And other scientists were, you know, were basically saying that, the, you know, they were working on the chemicals, mm. these scientists mm. and, and the industries, like... It was huge money. Well, they were been together, like, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 Um, and they just want they wanted her well, to just go. They wanted her to go away, basically, yeah. because yeah, I think exactly. they they realised that what she was saying could possibly be true, <laughs> <laughs> and we would Whoops. be in a bit of a um, yeah. yeah. But sad they, it was place. the way they attacked her, though, wasn't mm. it? Then so mm. you know, they saw her as vulnerable as a as a woman, I think. Yeah. Uh, but she was obviously such a strong person. Yes. Like, well, it was really <laughs> radical at the time, yeah. and of course, it gives birth to the whole environmental movement, yeah. really, which is an extraordinary yeah. achievement. So yeah, well worth you know, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're you're testing Cheers, out her memory. Carson. Yeah. Well, how lovely that you but read it. Then. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's taken so. It, it, from my point of view, it's taken so long. It's something that I've come to quite recently, actually. Mm. Um, since since taking on International Dawn Chorus Day, what six, seven years ago, if I remember rightly, that's when it. That's at a point when it actually came up, and I'd never heard of it okay. prior to that. Right. That's thing. Silent Spring. Rachel Carson, 1962. In Greek mythology, the sorceress Medea, enraged at being supplanted by a rival for the affections of her husband Jason, presented the new bride-to-be with a robe possessing magic properties. The wearer of the robe immediately suffered a violent death. This death by indirection now finds its counterpart in what are known as systemic insecticides. 
These are chemicals with extraordinary properties, which are used to convert plants or animals into a sort of Medea's robe by making them actually poisonous. In an age when man has forgotten his origins and is blind even to his most essential needs for survival, water, along with other resources, has become the victim of his indifference. Pollution of the total environment of mankind. piece that we did it was it it showed a bit of hope actually right um because there are people that are outside of the industries that are polluting our rivers and our ground i are i've i've concentrated mostly on artists right because i think that's the way forward because artists are the creative spirit, a way of working creatively, doesn't run down a single track. Right. So it doesn't go from point A to point B directly to get a, a result at the end. An artist will actually go off There's in many of different points to get to point B, mm. and point B will be very different in that mm. respect, and, and very creative as well. And I think that's all part of like the Greta Put. Tumbo mm. bit where she says that was lovely. I love that she, interlude. Yeah. I love her voice oh, yeah, and that little fun. piece that she oh yes, yeah, very special. Where she says if the, yeah, if the system doesn't work, then change no. the system. Right, she's yeah. got a wonderful. That's the that's actually the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And you don't and even I've noted in other bits of, of Carson's book, she actually says there are times when we need to actually make this product that way because there is no other way of making it. Well, that, what I think we've got onto and what the, the more contemporary artists are working with in the eco, eco art mm -hmm. content are looking at say, are, are basically saying, well actually, particularly the textile dye one, mm. they were saying that now that they're working with bacteria and working with sugar and things mm. like that to make colour and getting the colour out of bacteria, you can't expect to all be able to own a blue t-shirt. Right, right. Yeah, so it's about changing the consumer way of thinking mm. as well. And also saying that you don't really want to own 10 blue t-shirts. <laughs> yes, yes. Or just throw them away after one yeah. wearing is. 
Um, so it, it is, it's a big thing to change. And, and I think even Carson was saying that you can't do that. There's the sort of yeah. reasons why. And in fact, the artist that's working with Faber Futures, the people with mm. the textile day thing, is very interesting. She was saying that, of course, once you start digging down into the whole process, there are even problems with using bacteria to make colour dyes. Because if you're then matching sugar with the bacteria to make a colour dye, you've got to get the sugar from somewhere. You do. Cool. Yeah. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. No, there's not necessarily... So it's all about weighing, weighing things up. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what my mum said when uh, I remember when we came back from? I went to the first ever Isle of Wight festival. Oh wow! And uh, we were sort of, you know, hippies and stuff, and my <laughs> flowing whatever it was. And uh, my mother thought it was absolutely wonderful about the peace and power, you know. Oh, she and the, did. The girl with the flower yeah. going up to them and sticking it into the top of his rifle. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, that. I do. I can't. Yeah. And yeah. she just thought it was absolutely brilliant she said the only trouble is with flower power she said who's going to grow the flowers <laughs> where are you going to get and she said you're going to get and anyway so the piece the piece of work came out of <clears throat> all of these different things and in fact through gathering those bits of information it was pretty dark actually yeah so you needed it that hope so yourself yeah. 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 I was reading BBC reports about the weather and people are about switching off in droves yeah. and it was just such a joy to find pieces where people were looking in a different direction mm. looking at it from a different yeah. direction yeah and saying that this might be the solution none of them were saying it was a solution but it was another way of looking to be part of the solution. Yeah. Yes, let's yes. lie on our tummies and look in this pond. I think that's yeah. right, and I think you're right about you know, the artistic community as being, you know, a source of that creativity to come up with some mm. of these new solutions. I mean, that's a lovely, a lovely point. Well, just tell me about the the sounds again, though, because you you said you had Dawn's oh, chorus sorry. sounds in there. So what they did were. You, did you process some they, of those? They were processed. Oh. Yeah. So the, the narrative was quite simple, really, and that was when someone said something very dark. Yeah. Then it was a processed piece of down. Oh, well, I see. Okay. And then there's at one point someone meant, oh, about the weather. That's right, where the, the, the meteorologists say uh, in years to come, this could be seen as a cool summer. Mm. After that, there's the very processed, and actually the, the dawn chorus sound, I tried to make it sound much more like a tropical. Right, it did. It did. Yeah. So you took yeah. a British dawn chorus and you transformed, and transformed it, it to make it sound more tropical. Yeah. yeah. Faber Futures Journey with Bacteria Dyes continues to reveal astonishing discoveries and generate ever more intriguing questions. Earth's green mantle of plants make up the world that supports the animal life of the Earth. 
Although modern man seldom remembers the fact, he could not exist without the plants that harness the sun's energy and manufacture the basic foodstuffs he depends upon for life. in the UK topped 40 degrees centigrade for the first time on 19th of July 2022. The Met Office estimates that the extreme heat seen during the most recent heat wave is 10 times more likely now because of climate change and things could worsen. In a few decades this might actually be quite a cool summer. Nicolas Floch and Art Connection France have been working on projects linked to the marine environment. The stakes are high for humanity. The colour of water is largely determined by phytoplankton, the first link in the food chain at the base of life, by sediments and dissolved organic and inorganic matter. Phytoplankton is not only vital for marine species, but also for all species on the planet. It plays an essential role in climate regulation, CO2 absorption and storage, and oxygen production. The ocean alone assimilates 25% of CO2 and produces more than half of the oxygen. It is the regulator of the planetary balance in permanent interaction with the land, the ice and the atmosphere. Well, I think what you're saying around hope is so important, particularly when you're talking about the next generation, whether it's your grandkids or, or the students that I teach. You know, if they don't have that positive vision, it's never going to happen, yeah. is it? We're well, never going to get that change. So. Unless you come well, they give up before they even start. Yeah, right. Unless you come up with a positive answer to the problem, you're yes. not going to get anywhere. If you, can't, if you <clears> keep... I mean, this is what I'm saying about yeah. doing research. It was so dark sometimes, reading yeah, yeah, all this stuff. But I just, ha as, as soon as I found something more hopeful, more positive within that piece, mm. I thought, great, 
can put this alongside. Get all that rid of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still there and it's still yeah. a bother to the environment. <clears throat> but this is being a way of going. Yeah. I think that's so important. Being yeah. Lovely at. that you yeah. Yeah. factored that in. Doing the research and finding those pieces actually did give me hope. And when I read your I paragraph, you about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and that last, I thought it's got to end on that line. Yeah. It's got to end on, now that's what I call hope. That's a brilliant place <laughs> to finish. Well, thank you both so much and well oh, done. On, no. It's a fabulous piece. So I hope you enjoy no, listening did. back to it, it as much lovely. as I, I did. Our attitude toward plants is a singularly narrow one. If we see any immediate utility in a plant, we foster it. If for any reason we find its presence undesirable or merely a matter of indifference, we may condemn it to destruction forthwith. Besides the various plants that are poisonous to man or his livestock or crowd out food plants, many are marked for destruction merely because According to our narrow view, they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Many others are destroyed merely because they happen to be associates of the unwanted plants. The Earth's vegetation is part of a web of life in which there are intimate and essential relations between plants and the Earth, between plants and other plants, between plants and animals. Sometimes we have no choice but to disturb these relationships, but we should do so thoughtfully, with full awareness that what we do may have consequences remote in time and place. The natural landscape is eloquent of the interplay of forces that have created it. It is spread before us like the pages of an open book in which we can read why the land is what it is and why we should preserve its integrity. But the pages lie unread. solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself.
Adrian Newton, in his book Ecosystem Collapse and Recovery, says, the most powerful source of hope lies in the remarkable ability of many ecosystems to recover. It is good to see ecological restoration receiving increased media attention. In particular, the popularity of rewilding continues to grow. There is increasing awareness of the importance of ecological recovery for addressing climate change, as well as improving human livelihoods. Scientifically, we perhaps have a better understanding of ecosystem recovery than we do of collapse. The challenge is to scale up the restoration successes achieved to date. How might this be achieved? According to Bolinio and Aronson 2020, the answer is as follows. Over the next 30 years, ecological economics, ecological engineering, ecological restoration and supporting disciplines and professions must work together synergistically to blaze the trails and build the pathways of system-wide healing nurtured by the restoration narratives of an emerging restoration culture. Now that's what I call hope.